0: Dr. Mark Williams is an internationally recognised professor of cognitive neuroscience with over 25 years of experience conducting behavioural and brain research imaging, focusing on our social skills. He has taught the fundamentals of neuroscience to a whole range of undergraduate and postgraduate students and published more than 70 scientific articles. Mark has been awarded numerous high profile fellowships and grants and worked at MIT in the USA and at universities across Australia. In this conversation, we talked about neuroscience, the importance of connection, and how being a parent has changed him. I hope that you get as much out of this wide-ranging discussion as I do. Dr. Mike Williams, welcome to the podcast. Thanks uh, thanks so much for chatting to me today. Whereabouts are you phoning in from?
1: I'm from Sydney, Sydney on the northern beaches, um, near uh, Worrywood Beach, and it's a Cracker of a day, <laughs> blue skies, nice and warm, nice. and I think I'm going to have to go for a swim with the kids as soon as yeah. we
0: finish here. <laughs> Fantastic! And and speaking uh, speaking of your, uh, your your children, Mark, you wrote a really lovely dedication to them in your recent book, which we're going to talk about. And you said to my wonderfully connected kids, Ariana and Casey, you inspire me to be a better person. Why? Why is that the case?
1: Uh, I think anyone with kids would say that their kids inspire them to be a better person um but yeah my kids are are truly connected i remember i was recently um my wife's also a professor um and she does a lot of work around uh gender and gender politics within school within within the university sorry not within schools within the university um and equity within the university. And we were talking over dinner one night. And my daughter turned around and said, this is a problem for your generation, but we just don't care. And and that made me just made me warm my heart because I, I realized that yeah, um yeah, she has friends who, you know, um don't don't recognize the, the gender, you know, the male female or the masculine feminine dichotomies and so on and, and they just don't care about it. It's not that it's an issue or it isn't an issue or anything. Yeah. It's just just that we they, they don't they don't acknowledge it and they just, you know, everybody can be who they are and they treated as they are. Yeah. Uh, which I think is just beautiful. So yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the but one of the many, many, many experiences I've had with yeah. the kids that have just made my head go, wow. Yeah, and,
0: and the next so they're but- beautiful. And that's why, like I'm I'm a parent, one of my children is currently watching a movie, the other's at daycare, we just celebrated a fourth birthday yesterday. And um, it's, parenting has uh, changed me in ways that I can't put into words. Um, would, would you agree with that? How are you different now? Uh, after? I mean, how old are your children? How are you different now? Um, yeah. <laughs> yes.
1: what, what, so uh, I have a 14 year old girl and an 11 year old boy. Um, and it it does. I was fortunate enough, both my partner and I, she and I shared um the the duties. So we both went part-time um so that we could both be home with the kids half the time each. Um and so having that experience, just having that experience of actually um, you know, occasionally being weed on, um, you know, having, you know, <laughs> poo on your in under your nails and all of that. Um because you absolutely love this this thing that is there, um, and watching them develop, I, I think, yeah, as as a cognitive neuroscientist, I knew in theory all the developmental stages, um, which are really you know amazing to watch as they learn to speak and they learn to smile and they learn to interact with you and all of that um, that goes on. It was it's just an amazing experience to watch this small yeah. thing all of a sudden turning into a person and then yeah. when they become a person and all of a sudden they'll go for a walk with you my son and, and I walk regularly with the dog and have amazing discussions and love some that. of the things he brings up are just love um that. yeah beautiful and I, I just love that
0: I I love that and I um uh, it's amazing how much my kids don't care what I do like I think they do but they don't care like I uh, like it's funny the things that you worry about as a parent obviously living in sydney how on earth are you gonna pay the electricity bill and all that kind of stuff and and you there's all these sort of worries that that come up and and i think what i'm realizing is all my kids are interested in is is dad home to have dinner with them and is dad there for them when when they need him and and it's really humbled me because i think in 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 my job and i'm sure with yours there are accolades and speaking engagements and recognition and all of that stuff and while that is important to pursue um my kids aren't interested they just want me to be dad and I think it's a really same as my wife as well she could not care less what I did as long as I'm happy and as long as I'm a great husband and dad but it's a it's a real humbling thing isn't
1: it it is it is and it brings you great joy I I find it amazing that my kids um, yeah, want to go for a swim with me and then want to push yeah. me into the water or want to, you know, swim out the back. And yeah, um, that's what's important to them. I mean, all of the other stuff that, you know, me being on TV and all of that sort of thing. They really couldn't. Yeah. Give. If, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, that, um, that success this, when your kids want to hang out with you when you're older, which is great. And I think uh, that, that sounds really wonderful. That does. Yeah, I can't wait until they call me up and actually w- want
1: to meet yeah. up for for coffee or whatever.
0: Love that.
1: Um, and I think that'll be beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> and I and hope it, it happens.
0: Absolutely, and I'm sure it will, Mark. And yeah. and I know that uh, and that my lovely audience didn't uh, tune in for Dad Chat, um, but I do think <laughs> it's it, it's really important. I think to talk about those things and and what motivates us, and 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 just moving on slightly. Um, uh, is there a book uh, that you've read? I can see one on the bookshelf behind you. Um, is there a, I think that's a book. Um, is there a book that you have recently read? It could be within your sphere of expertise. It could be more broadly, uh, that has caused you to stop and maybe reconsider a few things in your life.
1: Um, yeah, great, great question. Um, <laughs> I read quite a bit, so uh, there's a um, wrote one called hold on to your kids. Um, that really made me think twice it was it's it's around um the the fact that kids all of our all generations are now we're stuck within our peer groups um, and we don't learn across our peer groups anymore um, and how kids really need to be spending more time uh with older generations and especially the the grandparents and so on and how that still happens in in small villages and stuff in um in in Europe, especially in Italy, and how you know these are the, what they call the green areas where people live much healthier, much longer lives. And a lot of it has to do with living across peer groups rather than being stuck within peer groups. And I, I found that I actually read that about six, 12 months ago now, probably longer ago. Um, I actually re- reread it because I was so fascinated by that work. Um, and I really do think there's something in that that we need to think about in Western society.
0: A book that I've read recently, Mark, which is really interesting is David Brooks' The Second Mountain. Uh, and it talks about the kind of the first half of your professional life. You spend this time kind of climbing mountains and achieving these wonderful accolades. But the it's the second mountain, which is actually more important, which is the contribution in your you you you're giving back to society and others. And it's really made me, Kind of stop and think, um, but that's a yeah wonderful, wonderful recommendation. If uh, it was actually recommended to me by my wife, uh, but um, yeah, really great um, uh, book. If you're if you're looking for something else to read in all the spare time that you have, I'm sure. Um, so, um, <laughs> Mark, you. what does a, a professor of neuroscience actually do? I mean, it sounds pretty, it sounds pretty interesting. And if if I was at a dinner party and someone told me they did that, I'd, I'd have a thousand questions. But but what does a what do you actually do?
1: So neuroscience is a huge discipline. Uh, I, I go to Society for Neuroscience conference every year, um, and there's over forty 000, usually about thirty five to forty thousand scientists there. So it's, it's a huge discipline, and ranges everything from the the molecular level all the way up to the whole brain, and ranges you know from from tiny little species like amoeba and um, and slugs all the way to human beings so um, it's a huge discipline i've always specialized in humans uh, and and, and live humans um, which sounds a bit funny but um we used to just study um you know uh, the brains of humans rather than after they passed rather than the actual live humans in the last 25 30 years we've had um much better technology. So we've been able to start looking at the, the brain, at working brain of, of live humans, which has been fascinating because we've made some amazing discoveries. Um, and so that's what I've really specialised in, that is looking at how a human brain works and how a human brain Uh, learns and develops during its life which is pretty fascinating and mainly using functional MRI which you've probably heard of everyone's heard of MRI and we just use MRI but we use it in a slightly different way where we take lots and lots of pictures very very quickly so we can see how the brain is actually doing things um, when when people are doing different tasks
0: amazing and and what specifically was uh what sort of been the um the main component of your research um over the over the course of your career
1: yeah it's evolved a bit I started off looking at faces and facial expressions so I discovered that faces actually capture our attention and facial expressions are uh, are processed subconsciously so um via this special um route to the um subcortical areas of our brain so that was really fascinating um and so social neuroscience has really been a big uh, part of it but also um, neuroplasticity so I've done a lot of work in neuroplasticity and how we can change the brains both in people who have different disorders but also in normal individuals so neuroplasticity has been also a big focus but um, yeah so the two interact and I think it's um it's been a fascinating journey to sort of evolve from the more so- how we communicate to then how we actually learn um, because of course Learning involves communication, and and communication involves involves learning. So the two things yeah. are, are really uh, intricately linked, uh, which yeah. is which has been fascinating, um, okay. and and it's been an amazing area of research because we've we've made so many new discoveries in that area.
0: Yeah, and so um, before we sort of do a bit of a deep dive into your into your new book, um, what's something? through the course of your career that you've um that you've changed your mind about? Have you had a particular assumption or a particular point of view that you've that you've either been proved wrong or some or, or you have proven yourself wrong? Is there something that you've kind of changed your thinking about um over the course of your career? It's a big questions. So. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, that's a
1: great question. <laughs> so when when I started um uh way back when I won't say how long ago because I'll Tell you how how old I'm getting. You yeah. can't tell because I don't have any hair. So that's well, no one, um... <laughs> no one can
0: see the video of this as well. So that's so all you. Oh, awesome! It, they'll
1: they'll never the know. Minute, okay, yeah. we'll, we'll keep it. We'll keep it quiet. Yeah. Um. So yeah, at the beginning, we, we had this uh theory that um we had these six basic facial expressions that we all perceive. So they were they were happy, sad, disgust fear, anger, and surprise. Um, And everyone perceives those no matter where you come from. They're innate, so we're actually born with those. Um, And um, we all perceive them exactly the same. And so if I see you smiling, then I smile basically an area of my brain activates, and that makes the same motor system smile in me, so therefore I feel happy so I understand what you're actually perceiving, what what I'm perceiving or
0: how you're feeling or what you're doing. Sorry to interrupt, Mark. Is is that shared across all cultures like obviously if you see somebody smiling uh it's obviously not language-based it's something which is innate and, and and human is that what you're saying
1: yes yes so that yeah. was the original theory so that's yeah. all innate and that's what everybody perceives and they you know original studies went up to Papua New Guinea and mm-hmm. showed that even those up in Papua New Guinea perceive um, Anglo-Saxons in the same way so that wow. that's the way we originally saw it and then I had a a, a a postdoctoral fellow come over from france and he he was talking to me about it and he he was arguing with me that maybe if you actually understand who the person is you'll perceive them differently and at the same time there was a politician here in australia who who every time i saw him smile i actually felt quite ill um, rather than feeling happy um and so I, I was like yeah let's look at this let's see if we can yeah, actually wow. get people to perceive these facial expressions differently so we did uh, we did a, a big study on it and um we trained people that to actually understand that this group of people perceive you know this group of people are really mean and these group of people are really nice um and so they had to learn these people within these two groups and then we scanned oh. their brains and actually looked at what happened when they were Looking right. at someone that they knew was evil, um, who was actually smiling, and what we found was that when you look at someone who you know is evil um, or you know is nasty, um, and they smile, you actually perceive and your brain reacts exactly the same as if they are actually angry at you. Hmm. So you perceive it as a negative emotion, even though you're seeing a happy emotion. So it sort of put a twist on the whole wow. uh, facial expression perception literature and and changed the way we 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 thought about. That, but it's not as innate as we thought. Well, it is innate. Um, but if we understand who the person is, or if we know the person, then There's this extra aspect to it. Yeah, that changes the way we perceive it.
0: I wonder if that says something more about our view on about politicians as well. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the case. <laughs> um, that's, that's, that's so interesting. And, and, Mark, before we hit record, you you mentioned that you've just returned from a whirlwind uh, kind of tour in Western Australia. So, how does your how does your work now um, relate to schools? Because I know you're really involved in schools. I mean, a lot of the um, the articles that are read up about you um, uh, uh, talk about the programs that you run in schools. But how how are the two related, and and, and what is your kind of life involved now uh, in terms of traveling around to different schools?
1: Yeah, so now I mainly work with schools, um, which I I just love doing that, Uh, um, and it's all around, uh, well, there's two aspects to it, which again, completely interact with each other, but one is understanding the neuroscience of learning. So understanding neuroplasticity and how that actually works um, so that we can actually help the kids, help the students to learn more more quickly so that they can spend less time learning and more time doing what they should be doing, which is playing with each other, right? Um, and actually interacting with each other. And then the other one is around connection and how teachers can make um, stronger connections with their students so that the students will actually learn better. Because we know the number one thing to actually get a student to learn is actually have a, to have a connection with the teacher. So I talk a lot about connection with the teacher. And then the third thing that I do a lot of work around is devices in schools and the negative impact that it's having on both mental health and on learning um, and how we can do that better um, to actually improve both mental health within schools and, and learning within schools. So those are the yeah. three big ones that I do. Um, uh, and they they obviously they all interact with each other so there's a lot of overlap between the three of them um, but it's all based on yeah my last 25 years of research yeah um, to be honest I never thought about that I'd ever be, end up going in schools but it wasn't until my kids started going to schools and my mm-hmm. principal the principal at the, the primary school um, started chatting to me because he knew what I did um, and so we started chatting and then he asked me To come and talk to his teachers, just as a volunteer, which I did, um, and that was popular. Um, And so his director then had a chat to me, wanted to have coffee with me, and after we chatted, he then got me to present to all of his principals um, across the the area, Um, and it sort of just and and then because of that, he's the next level up, asked me to present to all the all the directors in the area, and it sort of exploded from there. And I was never really expecting that but it was and then i realized how much of a need there was to get this information out there because yeah yeah, teachers don't learn neuroscience of learning um, at at university um you know things like heavy and learning which we've known for whatever 120 years there's no heavy and learning done in schools or or, you know taught to teachers and these things And, and the importance of connection there's some beautiful studies now around connection there's a great study um done recently where they they put eeg on um the teacher so they're scanning the teacher's brain and on all the students brains while they're actually being taught so it's in the classroom and they've got eeg okay. on teacher and all on all of the students um and they just looked at the students that had a kid that, that felt as though they had a connection with the teacher and the ones that didn't have a connection with the teacher and they found that because our brains are constantly oscillating mm-hmm. yeah. um, and they found that when the teacher started teaching the kids that actually had a connection with the teacher their brain started all oscillating in synchrony so they actually all synced down um, um, while they were learning um and the teacher and the students who didn't have the connection with the teacher continued to be asynchronous in their in wow. their oscillations and also the kids when they were in synchronization they remembered the information better than when they weren't in sync when they were asynchronous so it's so amazing that there's such a link between the wow. teacher and the student and that that connection between the two and so yeah establishing that connection before you start trying to teach is really really essential um, yeah. and i'm not sure yeah a lot of teachers realize how important that is
0: i think it must be so uh, liberating um mark as well to to start to see some data on things that we've always known, like, we've always known the importance as educators that we need to be connecting with our students and be being present and being engaged in their learning. But it must be really refreshing, like I said, to start to see some of these amazing data sets that support what we've already always known, it must be really great.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing to see that we can actually now look at the brain and see that, you know, it's actually synchronising. when. They're actually learning um, yeah. and synchronizing when they're actually connected with each other. Uh, so, I mean, we originally did that with babies and, and mothers and babies and fathers, and and that was really cool originally. Yeah. But they actually, now see it in, in other areas such as teachers is great
0: and and just for those people that are listening like a lot of our conversation today is coming from your uh, most recent book the connected species and so um that of course is available uh on your website and i'll put links to that in our show notes but it really was a um it really was a fascinating read and mark i was so grateful that you sent a copy through to me to have a look at and i don't think i have highlighted and scribbled over a manuscript more than yours it was really really quite lovely. And as I said, like to write a book is an achievement, uh, but to write a good one is a is a real accomplishment. And so um, congratulations on that. And one of the things that I absolutely loved was actually a quote from a Dean Ornish. And I'm just going to read it and then ask you how we can better connect as educators with our students. And it says, the need for connection and community is primal as fundamental as the need for air, water, and food. And I read that and I just sat back and went, it is absolutely true. And I think sometimes we forget that, like we as educators are in the business of connecting and engaging with our students. But how do we do a better job of that? And and what are some of the what are what are some of the evidence or sorry, some of the findings from the studies that you've seen, where teachers and students are actually connecting in more meaningful ways?
1: Yeah, great, great question. It's um, it's so we know uh, students don't. Well, From from a really primal point of view, our brains have evolved to connect, and so our brains are always trying to work out who's in our in group and who's not in our in group. And so we we don't actually learn as well from someone who's not part of our in group. So being part of the in group in the class is essential for you to actually learn from the teacher because you hear positive things from people on your in group, and you don't hear the negative things in the same way. Whereas you don't hear the positive things from someone in your yep. out group so if you've got yep. students in your class that feel as though they're part of the out group then they're the kids that are the that, that aren't doing as well they're the kids that sit at the back of the classroom they're the kids who are disruptive so if you bring them into your in-group then they're not going to be as disruptive they're actually going to be part of the classroom and they're going to learn much more quickly so it's it's really essential just to you know make sure that everybody feels as though they're part of your group Mm. um so that they will actually learn so they can learn right it's not even so that they will learn it's actually so they can learn because our brains have evolved to actually do this automatically that is just to identify who's part of our in group and then not learn if they're not part of our in-group, because that would have been dangerous back in the old days um and so we we need to do that to actually start learning and we know Classrooms that have teachers that are able to connect with the majority of their students, they do better than classrooms that don't. I never forget, I was working um, in, I, I do a lot of work with low SES schools and yeah. I was working in one particular one and they were struggling to get 40, 50 percent attendance on any particular day. And there was one teacher who who was had an amazing attendance rate and he had an amazing connection with the students. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the, the work he actually did before the class actually started so one of the things we know which is essential for connection is touch and i think that's something that's really missing in schools these days i mean we're all concerned um mm. for good reason you yes. know about the touch side of things but, you know every school i go to and i speak to the principal i say it's okay for teachers to shake hands and they're they're always like yeah of course they can shake hands and it's like well why don't we why don't we shake hands and so just getting a student to shake your hand as they enter the classroom so standing at the front door and shaking hands with each student will actually release oxytocin in that individual's brain which will make them more connected to you and more connected to the classroom and actually feel happier about being there and therefore they learn better so just simply by actually shaking hands with each student will actually result in better learning Um, and and, you know that's been shown so I mean it's a really simple thing for for teachers to do it's free (laughs) and you're going to get better behaved students you're going to improve mental health and you are going to get better learning and connections by standing at the front door and shaking hands with each student but we have this this
0: it's not difficult Caution
1: at the moment about touching students right about actually holding back and not being close to students but it's important for us to get close because that's how our brains evolved
0: yeah I, I think that's that's so important Mark and I remember I, I've had the privilege of working in a number of for most of my career in low SES schools in southwestern Sydney and I remember this one time this little girl um was in my kindergarten class and I was rushing and trying to get photocopying done and going to the toilets and all that stuff that teachers do in the 15 minutes they get for recess. And I was <laughs> I wasn't running across the playground because <laughs> I always tell students off for that, but I was walking very quick and she said, Uh, Mr. Green, can I show you something? And I and I said, No, not now. I'm in the I, I, and it was very early on in my career. And I said, Not now, I'm busy. And then I got about 10 steps further along um the playground I turned around and looked at her and this little girl was crying and she was from a really uh, troubled family and she'd drawn a picture of me um, helping her learn how to read in the classroom and I turned around I crouched down I got onto her level and I said I'm so sorry please tell me what you want to talk to me about and that has been one of those guiding conversations with me and it shook me so much that that could have quite possibly been the most important conversation I had with that child all year. Forget the photocopying, forget going to the toilet, forget the coffee hit. And it was a reminder, it's a story that I share many times, I've shared many times with every team that I've been in, is that we are actually not as educators in the business of educating children. (laughs) We are actually, our primary business is well-being and connection. And I think that's why you're Uh, book really spoke to me is because it's so easy to in the busyness and the chaos of schools to miss the reason why we're really there um and I actually met um uh, I actually met that girl a number of years later at at a local Westfield randomly and she says Mr Green I remember when I drew a picture for you and showed you and I remember when you turned around and listened to me and this would have been 13 or 14 years later and it's amazing the impact that um, it's very easy to miss some of those things wouldn't you agree if we're, if we're busy and we're flustered and we're doing all those important things but to miss the real essence of why we do what we do
1: yeah absolutely as I said I was just having WI and I did a whole bunch of, of schools and a lot of that was with the students and I I I had a student a student I did their psychology class and then i did the biology class and she was in both those classes and so she came she, she was in the psychology class, and then she came to the biology class and i i noticed her and i said you know you've come to this one as well you, you know you've just heard me you didn't have to come again and she she said "Ah, uh, uh, we all thought it was going to be a, another lecture but you actually sat down and talked to us um, so I wanted to talk to you again, so she wanted to sit through another hour of listening to me wow. chatting because I just I just sat down amongst them and just um, chatted to them in both cases about how they could improve yeah. their learning and so on. Um, and around psychology and, and that was wonderful right to have a student in year 11 who wanted to come to a second talk by me straight after the first one um simply because yeah i connected or you know she felt as though i connected with them and i actually sat down yeah. and talked to them rather than lecturing to them or or teaching them you know in a more traditional sense so i yeah. i think it's really really important for us to do that to actually connect but also that touch i think um i was at another school where this was in a low ses area in perth um and we actually asked them well they asked if they could get just two boys from each year level who um were having issues and and they've got a lot of violence in this school and a lot of the um a lot of the kids are either wards of state or they're in um that they're in uh, they've been looked after by family members and so on so th- this is a fairly rough area um and so they they chose two boys from each year level that needed support and so we sat outside they, they first had us in a room that i just didn't like um and it didn't feel very comfortable so i said let's sit outside so we sat outside and i first started talking about um a, a lot of different things my, my background and so on and also you know how it's important that they support each other because that's who they've got and that's who who's going to either help them or hinder them. So they need to and then I asked them all to actually just shake hands with each other um, so that they could actually start connecting with each other. And so they all shook hands. And then one of the boys and then I talked about touch and how important touch is and and the whole thing. And two of the boys who are both U uh, 12 boys and these were big boys um actually put their arms around each other and I said, "Oh, are you guys mates? And they said, no, not until today but now oh. we are wow. um, and I think that's so important and they're actually from two different gangs these two wow. boys and they, they've been fighting for for quite a long time um wow. and actually yeah and now mates and hopefully they'll both go back to their gangs and talk about the fact that these I love
0: that, that they've
1: got more in common than they have division between them and they need to actually yeah. work together rather than separate themselves but I mean that that to me is beautiful that that brings students to my eyes afterwards <laughs> not at the time because yeah, course, yeah. yeah busy trying to keep things together. But yeah, that sort of thing brings tears to my eyes. It's like to actually get kids connecting with each other. Cause we need, we need to connect. It's so important for us as a species.
0: I think one of the um one of the best things that we did as a family was we we don't have a TV. Um and so we have um uh, we, we of course have laptops and we might have a movie night where we project under our far wall but we, we don't have a tv and that was actually accidental because when we first bought a house we spent all of our money um, on the house and then we thought we better buy a fridge and the next fortnight we decided we should probably buy a bed and so it was accidental but it's been close to 15 or 16 years now where we haven't had a tv and our main thing in our house is actually our dining table which i'm currently sitting at which is very multi-purpose um and we sit around every single night and my four-year-old will always ask everybody what's your favorite thing about today and we just have a conversation and we look at each other and we we talk about things and it's the best it's the best thing that we haven't done is not to get a tv if that makes sense um but i i really um it was really lovely to um to read in your book the importance of um like even just being really intentional with those connections um because i feel like it's something which in our society we have lost i mean um is is that the same in your household do you kind of consciously kind of carve out times in your week to to connect you mentioned going for a walk with your son but are there other things that you do practically in your household to to make sure that you are connecting as a family yeah we we
1: try we we try to have dinner together whenever i'm i'm home and my partner's and my partner's also a professor so she you know has busy schedule a busy life too yeah yeah we always make sure one of us is here to have dinner with both the kids and the, we that we always have dinner yeah. at the dining room table Love um that. and talk we never have devices or anything like that at the dining room table as I said I was away all of last week um and I didn't get home until very late Friday night um but then Saturday morning both my kids got up and you know gave me a big you know hug and we all had breakfast together um, again around the dining room table with no devices so that we could okay. reconnect um, which was so important I think and then we took the dog for a walk all, all four of us went for a walk with the dog which again is so important because i had been away for a week and um I, I needed to ground myself again with people with yeah. my family um and I think breaking bread together is so important and breaking bread together when you're all there and actually connected yeah um, and nothing frustrates me more than seeing families out to dinner um and they've got ipads or they've got phones on the table, you know, and, yeah. and especially if the kids are looking at them. Yeah. I just find that um yeah that should be should should be illegal. <laughs> I should yeah. not be allowed to do it. And, and we don't go to restaurants where there's TVs um yeah. in the restaurant. It's just insane. It's it's what right it's sitting yeah. together and actually breaking bread, eating together um and talking, um get, getting that sustenance both uh the the physical sustenance of the food but also of of the heart as well so 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 important um and my daughter we we love to swim together um she's she's a water person like me um and so yeah swimming out behind the break she um I, i i'm a volunteer surf lifesaver and so she's just got her src so now she volunteers with me um, we did our first rescue together last year with a, an elderly woman who broke her ankle and Gosh. it was so beautiful you know I mean it was all for this woman who had broken her ankle and all the rest of it but to be able to help someone like that in that situation with my daughter um it was just yeah so rewarding afterwards I I you know, right. cried and cuddled <laughs> afterwards because I was just yeah. so it was so joyous to see how how well she kept this woman calm and went through all that process Lovely. um Yeah, it was just beautiful. Yeah. So, it is so
0: important. So, how on earth, Mark, do you sort of find the time? I mean, like you mentioned, like your partner's a professor as well. Uh, You've written books, you're speaking all over the place, you're doing all these exciting things. How do you, firstly, how do you find the time and how are you um, present in each of those moments? And and also, um, I would assume that not everybody in your profession and your professor as a professor has as much of a a balanced approach as you
1: uh it's a great question i i wonder sometimes myself um i was talking to someone recently uh, and they said i uh, it feels like you're a bit like the dog that caught the bus um they they took <laughs> so the, the idea that you know m- most people are trying to uh trying to you know uh, create um a, a legacy or something that they're really proud of that they can actually work in and, and do that sort of thing and uh, all of a sudden I've, I've caught hold of this bus and I'm not sure how to control it and it feels like that sometimes I'm sort of this dog that's latched onto the back of this bus and I, I don't know how to um control it but uh, my wife is very honest with me and I'm very honest with her we have honest conversations regularly about what we're doing, um and, and we both put the kids first. Uh, our children always come first, but not in a bad way. I think there's there's a bit too much of an emphasis at the moment to make sure the kids n- never have to go through any trials or tribulations. That we're not like that. We're not that. We, you know, we drive our kids around and everything. My like fourteen year old daughter works as a. Um, works at a restaurant three nights a week so you know she she has a job and all the rest of it my son will do the same thing as soon as he's old enough to do that so that it's not that we give them everything but that we are present for them and that's that's the most important thing for us um as a couple and so that's what we always focus on um but but yeah it's hard but it just takes it means saying no yeah. a lot um and I usually yeah I'll, I'll I usually say yeah no to, to organizations that most people probably wouldn't say no to and then I say yes to the ones that usually can't pay, um which probably isn't um
0: it, isn't it very good from a business point business of view. Yeah. Um so, yeah, well, like like I said, that may not be the best business model, but I think it does um it does say something about um the air, the space that you're in, which is coming from more of a place of service and empowerment, as opposed to making it a, a fortune, which I think is really, really refreshing and really lovely. Um, I did, I, I just wanted to ask you, like, there's so many questions I could ask you about your book. And, and as I said, I would encourage everybody to get a copy. I don't think I've ever sort of got up and, and shouted, yes, absolutely. And highlighted a, a passage more than I have your work. And it's, it's really easy to read I think when you quite often when you read works um by people who are academics respectfully um it's kind of difficult to follow and difficult to understand but your work is so approachable um and especially for amateur researchers like myself it's really applicable and really useful and so I I thank you for that and I think I, I just wanted to ask you quickly one of the things that really stood out to me um was um kind of the ways that we Consciously or unconsciously group people. I mean, you talked a little bit about a um, the story of the on the Oprah show. I'm a massive fan of Oprah Winfrey, by the way. Um, and I wouldn't. I uh, just uh, wonder if you wouldn't mind unpacking the story of Jane Elliott on the Oprah show in 1992. And just to jog your memory, it was about the blue eye brown eyed experiment. I thought that was terrifying, but also really interesting at the same time. But yeah, over to you. But Yeah, the fascinating thing was
1: she was actually a teacher. So where this came yeah. from was she, she actually did that experiment in her classrooms and found that these kids, when she would do... So I'll explain what they actually did. What they did in the Oprah Winfrey show was um, they they separated the blue-eyed people from the brown-eyed people um, and they treated the, um, the brown-eyed people really well and then they treated the blue-eyed people um, really quite badly. And then when they came in and they sat them down, they then explain to them that uh, that brown-eyed people are much better and much nicer and much more empathic and much more intelligent than blue-eyed people. Um and then very quickly it got very heated and you can <laughs> actually, yeah, watch yep. them, watch the episode, um, which is quite amazing that we can so easily set up those those groups. Um, but Elliot actually did it in, she was a teacher and she did it in her classroom. She was a primary you yeah. primary school teacher and started doing it in her classroom where she would tell the students um, that, you know, people who wear glasses um are, are much more intelligent and have all these genetic things for being more intelligent and those that don't are And then when they went out. During uh, recess or lunchtime, she found that they would group according to what she told mm. them, or, or she tell them the blue eye or the brown eye, or she tell them based on their hair color or based on hair length, or you know just random things that don't have any effect on your intelligence and so on. And each time she did it, they would then group like that in mm. in in the class in in the sorry out um, while playing and so on. Um, and so it was quite an amazing experiment. I mean, it was yeah we wouldn't do it these days in schools, of course, but um, yeah and it really showed our group mentality that we 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 can so easily manipulate that group mentality there was a beautiful study done in england where they um had uh football fans come in so soccer over there fans come in and and they have for example they'd have a liverpool supporter come in and they talk about liverpool and and, um the premier league and how you know uh, liverpool you know how well Liverpool was doing and the history of Liverpool and so on. And then when they left, the actual experiment was when they left, they'd have someone in a Manchester jersey walk across the road towards them and then drop something in front of them. And if they'd been in the experiment and talking about Liverpool, then the Liverpool wow. person would just walk past them and ignore them completely. If they had them into in in, uh, in the experiment and actually were talking about the difference between the European League and the Premiership League, and so it was at a bigger level wow. um, and then they did the same thing they walked out then that actually helped the person they'd pick up the Manchester that helped the person uh, who was wearing the Manchester jersey pick up the books and then they start talking to them about the difference between the Premier League and the, the European God. League and so on so we God. can change our groups as well we can easily expand our groups if we're actually thinking more expanded rather yeah. than thinking more contracted. So I think it's really important for us okay. to realize that we have these groups, but these groups are very flexible. Yeah. Um, and so if we can get out of that mentality, of these small groups and get more into a mentality of much larger yeah. group, I think we'd be much better better off. I mean, really? you look at the, yeah, Australia at the moment, I think we need to be thinking more about, you know, Australia as a big group and how we can come together rather than division. And,
0: yeah, Sorry. I I couldn't I couldn't agree more, Mark. And and I um it made me think of a an episode I saw with um Darren Brown. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Um, he is an English um uh, an English skeptic, but he talks a lot about how easily we are um, manipulated. And did this one experiment called the game show, and basically a, a, an audience. I'll I'll send you the link after this conversation. Really Please, thank you. Thank um, and I don't want to give away the 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 Thunder. Um, But um, it was basically these people were invited into a game show, and they all it was the process of de individualization. So the way that perfectly normal and perfectly rational people, once they're part of a group can do some pretty terrifying things. Mm. And essentially, they, they wore a mask, and they were voting on different outcomes for a live stream that they were watching, which was happening to a real person in real time, I won't steal what happens in the end, because it's mind blowing. But what it did is I grew up in the UK, I grew up, unfortunately, seeing things like soccer hooliganism and looting and rioting and all of these horrible things. But it really made me think about how, um, firstly, how we group people, but also how perfectly normal people can do some pretty terrible, terrifying things once you remove that identity or essentially put a mask on but like I said I won't um, I won't give away too much of it but it's a really interesting um really interesting view and and obviously um in terms of um our role in education what are some of the dangers of grouping individuals and having those stereotypes about uh, around people um that we're that are in our classrooms sounds obvious yeah. I'd Love to get your thoughts
1: <laughs> yeah no I mean there's there's different aspects to it right I mean you've got the the naughty kids that everyone talks about. Um, and so therefore, you, as soon as they're in your class, you're gonna group them separately to the other yeah. kids who are in your class. And that's really, that's automatic. That's not something that we have any control over, but it's something that we need to realize and it's something that we need to actually work on and actually bring in those individuals into bigger group because if you don't bring those into the bigger group then they're not going to learn from you and they're going to be you know an issue in the classroom And, and of course we've got behavioral issues you know increasing in australia and so by working on bringing that whole group together rather than having your automatic perception of these different groups within your classroom as, you know, a negative that you're not working on is really, really important. But there's also, you know, the the gender biases. My daughter is in a uh, selective school um, and she got, I was recently at a um, parent-teacher interview and the maths teacher was actually sitting there and she got in the top 5% for all of her marks except for one of her marks, she got in the top um, 20%. Um but this is at a selective school, so she's still well above average yes. For, yes. for the state. And he said, Oh, you know, um obviously because she's a girl, she's not gonna be as good at maths. Um and right. I talked to her, yeah. So yeah. Uh, naturally myself and my wife <laughs> reacted to that. Um I mean it's a tough it
0: crowd when you've got two professors and you've got one who is particularly focused on gender identity and and, and another yeah. one neuroscience
1: so
0: before you're going to make stupid comments like that but (laughs) anyway sorry (laughs) yeah
1: but um and and we spoke to her afterwards and she said yeah he he takes we're in the dumb class for mass and he takes the dumb class and most of us in that classroom are are girls and so we're not doing as well at mass but they're in the selective school and they're well yeah top two percent in the state as far as maths concerned so they're not at all the dumb class right they're, they're, they're the not as good at mass class in that school but that's cool and so yeah the, the biases happen all over the place even in you
0: know selective schools which is crazy right students tend to not tend to students rise to the level of expectations that you have and yes, and it, yes. it's really important I mean The fact that she knows that there is a quote unquote dumb class is uh means that she wouldn't be her perception of herself and in that subject would be changed dramatically. And I think it's Mm. I think it's really important. But I mean, we're currently thinking of classes for next year. It sounds crazy. Um, but one of the things that really stood out to me with your work was around that idea of um stereotype and grouping and making sure that we I wouldn't want my child to be labeled the the naughty kid or the or the whatever child i think that would be really awful as a parent and so i think it's it's really important not to take those biases or those prejudices into your classrooms i think it's a it's yeah really 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 important um yeah
1: and we also have to remember that i mean albert einstein was expelled from school because he was dumb right because he had dyslexia and they thought he was stupid i mean he was in year nine I was told by my principal when I was 16 that I would be dead or in prison by the time I was 25 and that I should get a, 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 a go and get a job at the abattoir as an apprentice because uh, that's all I'd be actually good at. Um, so we've got to remember that people, their brains are plastic and they're changing constantly. And we know, you know uh, pigeonholing based on marks um, isn't appropriate because the marks aren't actually telling you anything about the potential of this student because we know neuroplasticity is occurring and it occurs both all the way through our lives so you can actually change your iq by 15 basis points just during your teen years so during your teen years you can go from a below average student to a significantly above average student or you can go from above average student significantly below average student so by using pigeonholing by by based on their results in their tests or their results on IQ tests or their results in different classes means that you're restricting what they're actually capable of doing, not based on what their potential is, but rather based on your criteria at that point in time. And we know that the test actually isn't a good indication even of their ability at that point in time, because it depends on their anxiety levels and it depends on what else has happened during that day so if they had a fight with their mum or dad before they came to class they're going to get a much poorer grade in that test than they would have otherwise yet that test might determine whether or not they're in a selective mass class or not in a selective mass class and then affect their abilities for the rest of their their their, their schooling because of that criteria that's actually being put upon them um yeah. and then their brains plastic plasticity is going to occur so they're actually you know not going to get better at math because of the fact that they've already been when they could actually get better at math if they wanted to if somebody just turned around and said you've got the potential to be really good at math, and here's how we can do it and let's 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 enable you to do that and I think we need to realize that all students in our classroom have the potential to be the next Einstein if we actually just give them those opportunities
0: And and Mark, there's so much in that as well. And I think about like, um, I think about engagement or disengagement. And quite often, we, we we tend to blame the students for not being engaged. But maybe it's because we're teaching them content that's boring and irrelevant. Uh, maybe that could be the reason. And I think as an educator, um, it's my responsibility to find that thing, which makes each of my students thrive and grow and get excited to come to school. Um, and I think it's we don't, we shouldn't be blaming the kids if they're disengaged or bored. That's on us. That's our job. That's our one job as teachers to, to kind of get that right. Um, Mark, do you think that um, neuroscience should be an essential part of every training program for teachers? Do you think we're, we're missing kind of a vital part here, vital component of our training? Um, yeah, I, 100%. I, I, oh, yeah. I, whenever I teach. Yeah.
1: Whenever I talk to. Teachers, I always say that we should stop calling teachers teachers and we should call them neuroplasticians uh, mm. because I think teachers are neuroplasticians. You're actually changing students' brains um, and you're actually moulding their brains. And so if we called teachers neuroplasticians, it sounds very clinical. So they will be you know, treated like professionals that they actually are. Um, and and they would get more independence and be allowed to actually teach you know the, the way they should be teaching and, and understanding I mean what you're doing is is changing students' brains, right that's that's the point of teaching is to actually change their brains and so not understanding how a brain changes, I think is a real failing in our system. Um, but we need to be really careful that we're teaching them, what we now know, not what we knew 25 years ago. And a lot of the courses I see in neuroscience of learning is based on 25, 30 years ago where we talk about Piaget and all those things. And we know that's not true anymore. And so we need to really update what we're teaching teachers based on what we now know um, about how the brain actually works and, and focus on that. And I think that's really, really essential. And we could improve. Outcomes really, really quickly, and we can improve mental health issues really, really quickly um, if we actually just focus more on what we actually know about the brain and, and teach teachers what we know about the brain, so they can all be neuroplasticians um, and they can all have you know much more. I wouldn't say easy easy lives, but but so they can instigate those in the classroom, and and when you instigate a lot of those those tricks and uh, tricks and and um. Processes and understand what's actually going on. You you get improvement in mental health. You get more connection between you and the students, so the behaviour issues go down and and learning goes up. And, and improved learning then also improves mental health. So then you know there's this whole spiral thing, and it spirals up rather than spiralling down, which is awesome.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's Mark. There's so much in that, and I feel like there's a whole podcast episode in each of the. Sort of the points that you've raised, and and I do want to be um I do want to be respectful of your time, um uh, but I would also love at some point to do a a bit of a deep dive in a round two on on some of the amazing um uh, topics that you brought up today. Um the the I, I have a, a a final couple of questions if you don't mind, and the first one is uh, for those people that are not aware, and we've touched on a couple of the different attributes of it, but but what is a brain healthy school, and why? Has that um formed such a significant part of your work with schools more recently? Um
1: yeah, great, great question. Uh, again, few... it, 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 yeah. sorry. So, <laughs> again, that'll be another podcast, I think, that we'll have that's... to we'll have to reorganize and reschedule. Um but a brain healthy school is one, one that, that where, where all the teachers are, are aware of the neuroscience of learning and instigate that and, and use that within. The whole framework of the school. So that involves um, psychological safety, um, both psychological safety within the teaching profession itself. So the teachers and the executive are constantly practicing psychological safety. So they all feel okay to actually interact with each other. But then also that the school is working from a honeybee principle rather than from a locust principle, which comes from the Institute for sustainable leadership where, where actually each individual has the ability to make decisions on their own, but also that they're all supporting each other to actually improve each of the classrooms. Because I like to see each classroom as an individual um, team that's actually occurring, but then larger teams that can actually interact with those. And so the teachers all have time to actually work with each other and to mentor each other so that they're actually improving their practices across the whole school. And they have um, this psychological safety so they all feel safe in doing that. But also so that reading is actually a part of, reading from books is a part of what all, everybody within the school does and does regularly. Cause we know reading books just for having the whole school read a book or read something every morning for 30 minutes can improve uh, educational outcomes by 25% within two years. And all you've got to do is just instigate this regular 30-minute reading period where everybody from the administrators to the principal and everyone in between all just read for that 30 minutes so that, you know, students who actually arrive school late and go into the administration building to get their names ticked off, see the administrators sitting there reading as well. Um and it actually gives them the feeling that, hey, this is something we all do. This isn't just something that we're told to do because it's something that we're, you know, that, that's part of our learning, but it's something that we all do as part of our lives, all through our lives. Um they, those are just two parts of it, but also the the connection, you know, the teachers automatically stand up and go to the door. And shake every student's hand as they actually enter the room so that oxytocin is being released constantly so that everybody's connected and so the teacher gets up face to face with every student before they actually come into the classroom and ask them how they're going you know and what they want to achieve that day and so there's actually that connection between the two so they're actually looking each other in the eye because i mean a lot of the as you know a lot of the students who aren't doing that well the first thing they'll do is come into the room and go straight up the back right. And so the teacher never actually gets close to those kids that need the closeness the most, right? And need the connection the most. Um, They're just a couple, but there's lots of other aspects to being a brain healthy school that will actually help um, in both mental health and and uh, educational outcomes. Yeah,
0: there's there's as I said, whole podcast I think we'll have to do on it. In that mark and 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 look. The last question I have for you today, um, uh, and as I said, I'll put all of the links to where people can get copies of a copy of your book and your amazing resources on your website so people can stay in touch. Um, but if I was a um, a brand new teacher, um, I've just graduated, I'm bright eyed and bushy tailed and I'm ready to start my wonderful career in the education system. Uh, what would be a short piece of advice that you'd give me in order to build um, an amazing culture within my classroom?
1: Spend the first week connecting with your students. Um, show that you are, are are vulnerable. I got in trouble from the education department for saying this, but show that I'm going to keep saying it anyway. So show that you are actually vulnerable. Show them that you're a real person. It doesn't matter whether or not it's a U twelve student or it's a kindergarten kid. They 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 need to know that you're a real person and how you fit into their lives, and so therefore how you are going to connect with them. That involves, yeah, I would say, and when I work with schools, I talk about that first. Week of class being a week that you actually just connect with the students. There's no curriculum done. It's just about setting up the classroom and actually connecting with all of those students so that you have a relationship with them, or you know their all their names. You know, you know if they've got if they're single mum or you know living with dual parents or they're living with grandparents or whatever. You know, they know who you are. They know what you've got to offer. They understand that you're a real person um, and that you actually want to be their teacher right i mean teaching is is the first is the real first profession and teaching originally when we lived in small groups would have been the most important of of the roles right it would have been the leader in the group that would have taught everybody else and then you would have had leaders of different different jobs within that group again who would have been the teachers who would have actually taught everybody else how to do those things the teachers were the ones that decided where the tribe went when it was you know when there wasn't water around and you had to go and look for water or whatever it was the teacher that actually was the most important person Um, and so you need to show why you're the most important person when they're in the classroom and why they need to learn from you because we learn from people we connect with and we learn from people we trust and we don't learn from people we don't connect with or we're not we don't we don't trust and so establishing that first before you do anything else is really really vital um so so as a as a newbie teacher you make a connection with those kids they'll remember you 40 50 60 years down the track right um if you don't make that connection with them then you probably you you're not it's not going to be as easy to actually then teach them for the rest of the semester and and they'll do all the things you need right we know that there's there's five keys to learning which are to a it's connection you've got to connect first and then there's uh, um attention error feedback engagement um and consolidation But to have those other four, you've got to have that connection first because if you're connected to the person, then they attend to you much more easily and much more readily because that was some of my original research was showing that you attend to someone that you're connected to. You won't take error feedback from somebody that you're not connected with because you won't trust them. So therefore, you've got to be connected with them so they'll take the error feedback positively. Um, engagement happens much, much more easily if you're connected with them because they actually want to know about you and they want to know about what you can actually teach them. So even if it's a little bit boring, they're much more likely to engage in whatever you're doing. And then consolidation happens because you need to know what's in their brains so that you can help them consolidate the new information. So, you know, we talk about scaffolding and all these things, but to actually scaffold and to actually consolidate the information you need to know what's already in their brains. And you only know that through connection. I remember physics teacher talking to me about standing waves and he knew that I loved music and I had lots of records. And so he talked about standing waves in regards to the needle on the record. And I still remember that and how a standing wave actually works based on that. Now, he wouldn't have known to relate that and to scaffold or or, or to consolidate that 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 information with that example if he didn't know that I was hugely into records and and I was struggling with that concept and therefore to relate those two things so yeah make that connection and then understand those other four parts of learning and, and you'll be a brilliant teacher
0: amazing Dr. Mark Williams, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, I, I really, really appreciate it. And as I said, your, your work, The Connected Species, has really had an impact on me and has really um, not only given me some really great ideas for when I return to the classroom after our much-deserved break, um, but also some of the ways that I can really connect with my own kids and my own loved ones. And so I'm hugely grateful for you taking the time to write the book. Um, And uh, I look forward at some point to doing a round two. But thank you for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Matthew. And congratulations on the two beautiful kids you've got. (laughs) And um, yeah, I I, I look forward to uh, chatting again because it was really fun.
0: Thank you.